if you have your Bibles with you, go to Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet, and we're going to be in Isaiah 42. Infallibility and authority. We are going to start our new series on foundations, the foundations of biblical doctrines for the future of Christendom. Um, and it will be a review of some basic truths, but it won't be something to yawn at. So we're going to dig deep today. So Isaiah 42, verses 8 and 9. I'm actually going to read 6 through 9. We'll pray and then we'll dig into our passage. Isaiah 42, verse 6. These are the words of God. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for my people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the foundation that it provides for our lives. We ask that you would bless our efforts today as we look to the infallible and authoritative scripture that your Holy Spirit inspired for us. We want to be rooted in truth, grounded in your authority, and this is because we want to withstand any storm that may come our way. Help us to learn, to grow, and apply this truth today. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, as I mentioned, foundations, biblical doctrines for the future of Christendom, and uh, it is going to be a review of some basic truths, but um, we are going to tackle them, and it will probably feel more like a seminary class than a Sunday school class, just an FYI. And they are important concepts, and the reason I wanted to give the tagline for the future of Christendom is because right now, uh, we never live in a time that's post-Christendom, by the way. That's impossible because that would imply that Christ stopped reigning. <laughs> so there's never a post-Christendom situation. Um, there may have been a time in America where Christendom was a little more palpable. Um, maybe that's arguable given the historical circumstances that we in, in our nation specifically have went through. Um, but there's never a post-Christendom era. There's always a future of Christendom. There's always a, a growing and implementing of the gospel of the kingdom. Now, when it, with regard to doctrines, the Bible does tell us to move on from the milk of the word to the meat of the word. That is true. And that's, we, we do that in order to train our senses to better discern good and evil. That's what, um, well, I believe Paul wrote Hebrews, but that's what Hebrews tells us. And Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 2.15. However, to switch metaphors, we must also make sure the foundation of the house is sturdy lest we build something wonderful on sinking sand. Jesus, if you recall, gave us these exact remarks at the end of the Sermon on the Mount when he told us to build our houses on the rock that is himself and not on the sands of human autonomy. That's Matthew 7, 24 through 29. So the presupposition, of course, is that we are building. Everyone's building something. Jesus said you're either building it on the rock or you're building it on the sands of human autonomy. So everyone is building. That is, everybody is doing something with regard to the dominion charter we got in Genesis chapter 1 to work and keep the garden. We were told to build and expand the garden world. So everyone is doing something with regard to that. 
um, companies like Amazon or Apple um, or you know the, the satanic companies of Johnson and Johnson and others who keep um, forcing these sludge vaccines at us. Uh, very nefarious people behind the scenes, by the way. Um, but they are doing something and they think they're doing something good. Uh, but they are, of course, blinded by their own uh, human autonomy. So, uh, so everybody is, of course, building. Everybody's doing something. Some of it's meaningful for the Dominion Covenant. Um, it's great to have Apple products. They work. I like them. Um, I also realize that they are very much um, pagans who are promoting a lot of pagan ideas. So we kind of live in this world where there's a lot of good things and technological advances that are by the grace of God, but a lot of people are doing it that don't honor Christ the King, and so we kind of have to walk that line. So working, building trustee families, uh, kids having Christian educations, building businesses, entrepreneurship, all of those things are to be done, but they're to be done in obedience to our master, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are cultivators. That's what it means to be a culture builder. We are cultivators. Um, we build culture and so build we must. And if we're going to do that, we need to go back to the foundations. So this 10-week series is going to cover a wide range of topics, a wide range of topics. The doctrine of God, which we'll talk about next week, some very heavy things as it relates to contemplative theology instead of biblical theology, and I'll explain that. Um, the doctrine of creation, the person and work of Christ, covenant theology, the ecclesia, that is the church, um, eschatology, we're going to spend a week on eschatology, and then the last week we're going to do something on culture, and uh, I have some plans for that as we go to Lord willing. And that's almost all the topics, by the way. Now, my reason, I, I want to say this, my reason for doing this, this series is twofold. One, as I said, checking the foundation is always a good idea. A bad foundation can mean the walls fall, the roof falls, and then you have a, a mess and the house comes crashing down. But two, as we assimilate newer folks into our fellowship, I want to make sure that these basic truths of Christianity are understood and acquired. And um, think of this as me... We're in an armory right now, and I'm passing out AR-15s. That's what we're doing, uh, if only, right? <laughs> Cody would like another one. So that's, that's um, and, and by the way, it's, you should have guns. Yeah, that's just, that's a good thing. But everyone needs to be equipped with sound doctrine. Kids, I'm thinking of you too. You need to be, especially the older ones who are still paying attention to what I'm saying at the moment, you need to be equipped with sound doctrine too. So... We're giving you Nerf guns at the moment, but when you're ready to convert that into a, you know, a 50 cal, we'll go for it. So let's look at our text, and then we're going to go from there. Isaiah 42, verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Before the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell of them. Now, there's a lot of passages that I could have chosen to anchor the principle of infallibility on. And Isaiah says quite a lot of awesome things about God and his character, his person, and so forth. But this one, I think it, it seems to do the trick rather nicely. What Isaiah tells us is this. God himself possesses an inherent glory that he doesn't give to anyone else. There is glory that he gives to man... Yes, but there is something deeper than that that he doesn't give to anyone else. 
this glory is the weightiness of his holiness and his perfection. Some things we'll get into next week. You might say his infallibility. The, by the way, the Hebrew word for glory is kabod, and, and um, it simply means weight or importance um, or heaviness. It kind of has like this connotation of something that's really important, really heavy. Um, that's God's glory. Because God possesses an intrinsic value that surpasses all of the created order, the praise due his name, Isaiah says, is wholly unfit for idols. Idols cannot contain the praise that God can. Since God is the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh himself, that's his name, he's the absolute personality who transcends space and time. By the way, he does participate in space and time as, as well. But since God is the Lord, things come to pass in accordance to his sovereign will. In fact, God insists, he says here in Isaiah, on his ability to declare things, quote, before they spring forth. Before things take place, God tells of them. God has declared the end from the beginning, that's Isaiah 46.10, and therefore he can, without hesitation, tell of things in the present that will come to fruition in the future. In other words, when God speaks, infallibility is speaking. When God speaks, infallibility is speaking. Hence, why we'll see shortly, the word of God is infallible and thus authoritative. Now, let us define infallibility by making a very, very important distinction. When we say, for example, that the Bible is inerrant, it's inerrant, we mean that it contains no errors. There's, there are no historical falsities. Moses didn't recount something historical and then got it wrong. There's none of that. There's no doctrinal errors. We don't go to the Bible and say, oh, it clearly teaches this, and that's not true, as if you can appeal to something else. It doesn't have doctrinal errors and so on. So the inerrancy, we, we talk, sometimes talk about the inerrancy of Scripture. The inerrancy of Scripture means that it doesn't have any errors. God gave us his word. Now, infallibility goes further than that. It goes way further. Infallibility means that errors are utterly impossible. Okay, not, we're not just saying the Bible has no errors. We're saying that it's not even possible. That's what infallibility means. There can be no errors because God does not err. It's not even a possible thing for him to do. God can't accidentally or whoopsie-daisy something. He doesn't do that. So theologians will oftentimes speak of what's called the linguistic model of the Trinity, which is just a fancy term for meaning that the Father is the speaker, the Son is his speech, and the Holy Spirit is the very breath of God who carries out that speech into the world. John Frame has written on this in his wonderful, you know, 5,000 page systematic theology. Highly recommend that if you really, um, if you need something heavy to kill an animal with, uh, a deer, or something to read, there you go. Definitely my, one of my favorites, probably the favorite systematic theology. So the Bible, the Bible then, we say, is the express revelation of God. It's the express revelation of God. He has spoken in the past, that's what Hebrews 1.1 says. And then in the last days of the Old Covenant era, Hebrews 1.2 says that he spoke to us by his Son, Jesus Christ. So God speaks. There are no errors in his speech, okay? 
Um, there may be errors in this sermon, but there are no errors in God's speech. And it's not possible for the absolute God and creator to utter a modicum of error. It's just not possible. God does not speak errors ever. It's never happened. It's impossible for him to do. It would be contrary to his innate nature and in his being, what we call his ontology. More on that next week. Um, it can't be done. So when you think um, the, the old conundrum, can God you know, make a rock so big he can't lift it? Well, it's, it's absurd to think about those things. Um, God does not find himself in absurd categories. Uh, he's completely, perfectly logical. As Rush Tooney has ta- taught us, he said, infallibility is a true truth principle that is inescapable. It's a principle that exists in basic logic, and it exists in the world of theology and philosophy everywhere. It's unavoidable. Infallibility exists somewhere. Every system of thought has an implicit doctrine of infallibility. But I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves here. So for Christians, you all confess Jesus Christ as Lord of your life. What is your position here? Well, for Christians, then, the Bible is our infallible source of truth. It's our infallible source of truth. God is completely and totally self-conscious. Follow me with this. He is completely and totally self-conscious, which means... That means that there's no hidden potentialities in God, right? He's not insecure. God never, he's not like us. We get insecure about things. God is never in a moment insecure. God is never unsure of himself. He, he's, he, he doesn't come across a situation and think, oh no, what do we do next? He, he, that's not even possible for him to be that way because he's totally self-conscious. He's totally self-conscious and self-aware. Nor is he somehow lacking in the ability to make correct decisions as a result of being insecure. God does not function that way. He does not ever in any moment struggle with uncertainty or doubt or double-mindedness. Well, we could do this, but maybe we should do this instead. Not, not possible. doesn't happen. What we mean by this is he's completely and fully self-aware. He's so self-aware that he doesn't go into his own heart and mind, speaking, of course, anthropomorphically. <laughs> he doesn't go into his own heart and mind and find inconsistency like we do. He doesn't go into his own heart and mind and find, oh no, I'm not sure about this situation. There's no, theologians call it hidden potentialities. Not, there's not something underneath God's feeling in his mind that somehow makes him um, not self-aware. He is completely and totally self-conscious and self-aware, which means then as a self-determined being, God is completely and uh, totally self-determined. God does what he wills. Do you guys always do what you should do? No, there's inconsistency, not possible with God. So, Again, this is, we'll get into some more of the doctrine of God next week. But as a self-determined being, he determines all things. And thus, when he, as an infallible person, speaks, his words are infallible and authoritative. So we're working from the doctrine of God, which I intentionally switched it the way I did, but that'll be next week. But who God is, and because he's self-aware and because he can't speak error, when he speaks, we trust it and see it as infallible. It's impossible to err. 
It's inerrant without errors. It's infallible, not possible to have an error anyway. So Rushdoony writes, quote, An infallible word must come from a self-conscious source, from one who speaks in full knowledge of himself and his abilities, end quote. In order for a person um, to speak infallibly, he has to be infallible, essentially. So when God speaks, there's no error. Thus, if a person who cannot err is to speak a word, and his word without error as well, is that speaking as a consequence, guess what this requires? Omnipotence, the ability to speak and bring it to pass. God is not just self-aware, he's powerful enough to bring it to pass as well. So that's what Isaiah is getting at, essentially. God's word, what we call the Holy Scriptures, comes from an all-powerful, unable-to-err being. The infallibility of God and the infallibility of the Bible go together. That's the point I'm trying to make. That's what Isaiah is telling us. When God speaks, it comes to pass. That's because what he says is always true. To deny one, of course, is to deny the other. You have people that will say, well, you know, the Bible does actually have some errors in it. And, and um, I think it was John Piper who said, well, you know, anytime you come to the Bible and you are confronted with a, a problem, just know that you are the problem, <laughs> not the Bible. Just always assume that because we are fallible people. We are not infallible. So God does not speak lies. Planning, predestination, omnipotence, right? His all-powerfulness and infallibility all belong to God, Isaiah says. When God is denied what is due to him, man or the state gladly takes his position. So this is why it's so important to hold fast to the doctrine of infallibility of Scripture and the infallibility of God, which will apply later. So I want to talk for a minute about the Bible itself. What exactly is the Bible? To start, I'm going to quote from two different catechisms, and I'm actually going to reference these catechisms throughout the whole series because I think they're good summations of it. There are two, two catechisms that will help us understand what we're asking when we say, what is the Bible? What is that thing you're holding in your lap or that app that's on your phone? We begin with the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question two. That question is, what rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? What rule? Now this question, the famous question number one, the most well-known question of the catechism is, of course, um, uh, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? Well, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Well, the, the question then here is what rule has God given us? What standard do we have to help us accomplish the glorifying and the enjoyment, right? That's the question. And the answer to the question is this. The word of God, that's the answer, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments is the only rule, note that phrase, only rule, to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. That's the standard, the Bible. Now, question three is actually a great follow-up, too. It says, what do the scriptures principally teach? And the answer is, the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. So the Bible is our rule, absolutely. That's, that's where we go. It teaches us two crucial things, who God is and who man is. And not just who God is, we, we, look, we look to the Bible to understand who God is, and that's important, but we also need to look to the Bible to know what God demands of us as his creatures. 
So no one's doing that today in our culture. We don't have a president. We don't have congressmen pushing this idea of self-consciousness, right? That's the epistemological self-consciousness stuff we've talked about before. But it's like no one wants to be self-aware. We just want to blindly, okay, we'll just sign a 1.9 trillion coronavirus package again. Oh, okay. And hardly any of that goes back to the American people. No one stops to say, wait, we should consider what God might say. <laughs> because everyone's looking for self-interpretation everywhere else in places they can't get it. You can't find it there. So people, that's why they go to Eastern mysticism or they find, they dabble with other religious things. Oh, I can enlighten myself with Buddhist teaching and experience Nirvana someday. And they go on to all these quests to find meaning in the trash. They're just looking at trash cans. That's all they're doing. The book, To Be a Christian, an Anglican Catechism, asks a similar question. This was actually edited by J.I. Packer, the same, um, uh, the same author. He actually passed away just a few short years ago. Incredible man, incredible legacy he's left behind, by the way. If you get any of his books, you'll do well. But the question is number 25, what is Holy Scripture? What is the Bible? What is Holy Scripture? And the answer is this. Holy Scripture is God's Word written, given to uh, excuse me, given by the Holy Spirit through prophets and apostles as the revelation of God and his acts in human history and is therefore the church's final authority in all matters of faith and practice. See, even Anglicans get it right. Now, note a couple things. One, it is the written form of God's word. God spoke. It has been written, right? Two, it was given by the Holy Spirit through the vehicle of the prophets and the apostles. More on that later. Three, it teaches us about faith and practice. And not only does it teach us about those things, it does so because it is the church's, quote, final authority, end quote. So the Bible is your final authority, okay? Not a pope in the Vatican, not any man, not an elder, not a pastor, None. No one. If you look around on earth and you haven't picked up a Bible and you're looking around, no one else has that final authority. Not the state. Okay? That's why it's, people can't wrap their minds around. Why would you not? You, you wouldn't wear a mask? Why would you not? We're supposed to do what they tell us. Well, no. They're not doing what God tells them to do, so I'm not going to do much of what they tell me to do. Because they're not the final authority. No pope, no man, no civil government is the final authority. There are legitimate authorities, but they're not the final authority. So no man on, here, on earth here is your final authority. The Bible is it. That's your authority. Now, I want to mention two other verses out of dozens and dozens that we could have. I just picked two that are pretty much the, they do the job well. And they are helping, they're going to help us understand the Bible, why we say what we're saying, and why the catechisms say what they say. Um, you don't have to turn there, but if, you, if you're writing notes, you may want to look later. But 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. 2 Timothy 3, this is a very famous passage. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says this. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God, that includes women, the child of God too, may be complete, equipped for every good work. I'll read it again. All scripture is breathed out by God 
and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Bible is breathed out. The Greek word is theopneustos. It's breathed out by God. Scripture is God's speech. By the way, in Hebrew, ruah, and in, and in um, Greek, the uh, um, panuma, the words breath and spirit, are, it's the same word. So it's, there's kind of a play on words sometimes in Scripture, but if you were, oh, it's really windy out, you would use the same word as breath. Um, so that's just an interesting thing. So it's like God's wind came out in the Scriptures, His breath. And it's the same word for spirit. It's God-breathed and God-spirited, you might say. Now, it's invested, of course. Um, script, scripture is God's speech, God's voice, and it's invested with all the authority, power, and uh, that belongs to him. So again, infallible God speaks. That word then carries with it the same authority and power that, that he does. It's his speech. It's his breath. Now, as such, it's profitable for teaching, um, teaching us the way we should go for reproof or for correction. If you're off on life, you're on a path that you should, shouldn't be, the Bible's going to bring you back if you submit to it, of course. And, of course, it's for training in, in righteousness. So that's to the end that you as a human made in the image of God might be complete, it says. And you need to be complete so that you're equipped for every good work. The second verse is 2 Peter 1.21. 2 Peter 1.21, it says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. At the end of the day, we confess and believe in what's called the verbal inspiration of the Bible, meaning that God used words to communicate to us. The writers of the Bible knew what they were doing, they didn't always know the fuller meaning of what they were saying. Think of the Old Testament prophets, um, Isaiah penning and writing the suffering servant passages in Isaiah 53. I don't, I don't think he fully knew, oh, that's Jesus of Nazareth. Um, he knew that there would be someone, a servant, who would suffer on behalf of his people. So he had those categories, but he didn't fully grasp the entirety of it. Um, and why would he? he? He didn't have the fuller revelation. So they, they knew what they were doing. They used ordinary source information, by the way. Um, they interviewed eyewitnesses. Luke tells us, look, I created this account as best I could. I, I, he's essentially saying, I talked to people. Luke traveled with Paul. He would have probably interviewed Peter or Mark, some of the other disciples. Um, he interviewed. They used ordinary means of conversation. Ah, uh, yes. Peter, tell me again about that time you were walking on water and you fell in. That's pretty funny. And he tells the story. So Luke is carefully writing these things. He, he writes an orderly account, he says. And so they used, they interviewed people. They, they recalled their own experiences. As the, Jesus said, the Holy Spirit would help them do, by the way. They recalled those times when Jesus, oh yeah, the Sermon on the Mount. Yep, I remember when he said that. And they, they wrote it and God superintended it. Um, they were guided by the Holy Spirit who protected them from making errors in their writing. And in this, what you might call a heightened supernatural state, they documented exactly what God intended to be documented. In a real historical situation, Paul, think of him writing for prison and writing these letters. And, and God in that moment was using Paul. And it, it wasn't like they went in autopilot and like, 
you know, they went into a trance and they're just writing. So like a weird magical thing. No, Paul is literally, well, oftentimes he had to have someone a scribe write for him, but he's writing this and it's just what God wanted it to be. So, by the way, a quick thing you should also know, the Bible doesn't merely contain the Word of God. It is the Word of God. So, important distinction. The Bible doesn't merely contain the Word of God. It is the Word of God. Jesus said in John 17, 17, Your Word is truth. Thy Word is truth. Now, I want to I kind of shift gears and give you basically some fast facts in the Bible because I think they're important. And frankly, I want to give us an opportunity to come up for air, <laughs> and then we can plunge back into this doctrine. There are several things pertinent, I think, to know about the Bible. So just like five of them, I think five or six, I can't remember now. But first, the Bible was written in three languages. The Bible was written in three languages. Uh, you had Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Uh, oftentimes, the Old Testament Bible uh, you have portions of Daniel and Ezra and others that were written in Aramaic. Uh, you go to the New Testament, you have Koine Greek. That's what it was written in. The Old Testament, Hebrew, some parts in Aramaic, New Testament, and Koine Greek. By the way, we say Koine Greek because that was the language of the, com the common folk, common language. Second, the Bible was written on three continents. Maybe you didn't know that. Three continents. Modern-day Israel is considered Asia. Portion, we call it the Middle East, but technically as far as like a continent goes, that's what, how we divide it up. Portions of um, Jeremiah were written in Egypt, considered Africa. Uh, you may or may not recall to mind, Jeremiah was actually hauled off from Jerusalem to Egypt. Um, the Babylonians came in and destroyed the place. Uh, many New Testament epistles and letters were written from European cities as well as Paul traveled there. So three continents. Third, the Bible in the original languages has a total word count of about 611,000. That's a lot, 611,000 words, roughly. Fourth, in the original language, by the way, just quick poll. Who would say that the book of Psalms is the longest book in the Bible? Just, I mean, if you want to raise your hand. Yeah, I know, I... I I made a mistake. I made you think, wait, that can't be right. <laughs> okay, Isaiah is a good guess. Okay, a lot of people think Psalms. I mean, you have Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible. But after Psalm 119, it kind of falls off the rails. I think it's what, Psalm 125? Somewhere in there, there's like two verses. It gets kind of short. Um, technically... The book of Jeremiah is the longest book in the Bible. It has 33,002 words. Just, in, just thinking language, uh, word count. Genesis is actually in second, and Psalms is in third. The shortest book in the Bible in terms of actual word count is a mere 219 words, and that's the third epistle of St. John. Fifth, regarding authorship. It's interesting when people have questions about how the Bible was written, and who it was written by. It was written by more than 40 traditional authors from uh, various people from different backgrounds. Kings wrote some of the Bible. You had um, farmers, fishermen, of course, a tent maker. Paul was a tent maker, bivocational ministry guy. Uh, homeless prophets, ragtag folks, <laughs> uh, musicians, pastors. Luke was, an, was a medical doctor. 
scribes, a lot of um, scribes. Uh, Baruch was Jeremiah's scribe, and he held Baruch was a. That's what he did as a profession. He was a professional scribe. So you have different types of people. And lastly, just in terms of fast facts, um, the chapter of divisions that you have in your Bible came in around 1227 A.D. by the work of Stephen Langton. He was an arch, archbishop of Canterbury. So that was 1227 when you had chapter divisions. In fact, the, Wyth- the Wycliffe English Bible in 1382 was the first Bible to use the chapter pattern. Today, most everybody uses that chapter pattern, by the way. As regards the verse numbers themselves, a Jewish rabbi by the name of Nathan um, entered those into the text in around A.D. 1448. And in 1555, Robert Estein uh, divided the New Testament into um, numbered verses. So, so you had the Hebrew and then later the Greek. And so now today, that's where it comes from. You have a Bible that has, we call them addresses, but chapters and, and verse numbers, and those are all put in about 500 years ago. Roughly, so that they didn't write that way, in when the original autographs were written. Now, <clears throat> I want to make sure that we're clear on this doctrine of scripture and infallibility, because moving into the future of Christendom is going to require us to reject all false claims of infallibility and insist upon the infallibility of the Holy Scripture. So we're we are in a fight. We're in a war right now. Uh, the state is continuing to be this. Um, Massive problem, we shall say, and we have to know the issue of infallibility if we're going to if we're going to fight against it. Several times in the New Testament, do we have an assertion of this claim? For example, in John ten thirty five, it says the Scripture cannot be broken. Jesus Himself said in Matthew five eighteen, "For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished." We also know. That man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Matthew 4, 4. So over and over again, we have the Bible asserting its own inviolability. That is, it cannot be violated. It can't be broken. The scriptures are God's word. And you can Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson them to death, right? And cut it up and paste it however you like. But that, you, you're not breaking the scripture. You're not breaking it. You're not violating the authority that it has. Ultimately, you can't do it. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the basic Christian confession is what we call the verbal inspiration of the Bible. God used words because words are the medium of communication. God is an intelligent person. He is an intelligent being. God is intelligible. And he stooped down. I think it was Calvin who said he talked like baby talk to us. But he stooped down. Um, to communicate with his creatures through this form of communication. I don't know what language Adam and Eve spoke in the garden. Was it Hebrew? A lot of people think so. I don't know. But we know after the Tower of ba- Babel in, in Genesis 11, things sort of went sideways. And we have multiple languages and multiple, lest we come and try to you know, become this monolithic state and, and crush everyone and rival God as a result. So we don't come to God through magic spells and incantation. Rather, we confess that God spoke. He used human agency in the process. Now, John Murray writes this. He says, quote, The doctrine of infallibility is not peripheral. What is at stake is the character of the witness which the Scripture provides for the whole compass of our faith. 
It is concerned with the nature of the only revelation which we possess respecting God's will for our salvation, the only revelation by which we are brought into saving encounter with Him who is God manifest in the flesh, the only revelation by which we may be introduced into that fellowship, which is eternal life. And one more thing, and the only revelation by which we may be guided into that pilgrimage to the city which hath the foundations, whose builder and maker is God. End quote. So scripture is thus to be understood as the living and abiding speech of the Holy Spirit. It is not a dead word, but one that is very much alive. So in, in scripturated word is God-breathed word. What you have in your Bible is what God has breathed out. Which means that if we want to know what God thinks, you have to go to the Bible. You don't go to a man. You can learn from other men. I learn from other men all the time. Okay, but you, ultimately, that's where you go, the Bible. This is what we call the finality of Scripture, the doctrine of finality. We don't currently have prophets and apostles, and Jesus is currently in session in the heavenly places. So if we want a word from the Lord, we must look to the Bible. And when we look to the Bible, we are told that the Holy Spirit will assist us in that endeavor. Far too many Christians want to experience God through magic and necromancy or, or emotional sensationalism, which I mentioned last week. We don't need to learn new techniques and methods to experience God. We have his holy word. Now, Reformed theology, um, just a, a few more things and we'll wrap up. Reformed theology, which I believe gives us the best expression of these doctrines, it narrows down the doctrine of Scripture to four basic essential areas. One is the necessity of Scripture. The necessity of Scripture. This means that God, in showing himself generally to creation and then specifically to creation through Christ and then his word, had to inscripturate this special revelation for four basic reasons. Why did, why did you need the Bible? Well, and, and I'm... I'm, I'm um, I'm learning from Van Til on these points. One, it, it, so that it might remain through the ages. Two, so that it'll reach all mankind. That's why translating the Bible is so important for missions and getting the gospel to the nations. Three, so that it might be offered to men objectively. We're giving them an objective word from God. Four, and fourth, so that they might have the testimony of its truthfulness within itself. So we need scripture to understand the speech of God and so that other men may understand the speech of God. That's why we call, what we call the necessity of scripture. Two, the authority of scripture. That is, scripture is necessary because an authoritative revelation is necessary. If, if God doesn't reveal himself, we're a bunch of blind idiots walking around tripping over stuff. Okay? Scripture is necessary because an authoritative word is necessary. God has revealed himself authoritatively in history, and the scripture, the Bible, reflects this. So necessity and authority go together. So sin sinners don't realize the abnormality of their autonomy, right? After all, they are the blind person, they are deaf, and they're just tripping over everything. But in order to get out of that ethical predicament, a revelation has to come. We had to have a revelation to know. Otherwise, we would just be blind and deaf and dumb, right? And not just any revelation will suffice. An infallible authoritative revelation is needed. Scripture is that authoritative revelation. Third, 
the perspicuity of Scripture. The perspicuity of Scripture. The Bible is necessary. That authority comes with it is necessary. And if it's to be understood, if it's to be intelligible, then it must be clear. That's what perspicuity means. It must be clear. Each person must come to the Bible with the aid of the Holy Spirit and learn about God and learn about who man is. And we believe that God's communication to us is clearly expressed and entirely intelligible. It's perspicuous. Fourth, lastly, regarding the doctrine of Scripture, we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture too. The sufficiency of Scripture. A clear authoritative revelation is necessary, and if it is all those things, then it is sufficient for what we need. So, so our interpretation of reality, apart from God's revelation, is blinded. So in order to overcome that hurdle of blindness, a man must be born again. And to be born again is to be brought into this all-sufficient revelation of God. Listen to what Van Til says. He says, quote, The whole matter centers about an absolutely true interpretation that came into a world full of false interpretation, end quote. What did Adam and Eve introduce into the world? False interpretations. What has Jesus Christ done? He's entered into the world for a true interpretation. So, so God spoke. Man can now be born again, and you can now interpret the world correctly. God spoke. If you learn anything today about the doctrine of Scripture, those two words, God spoke. Now, I want to pull these all together for just a, a few points of application and conclusion. The fact is, we definitely are living right now in a culture that is looking for infallibility in all of the wrong places. The identity politics, so-called cancel culture, everything must be racist brigade, continues to progress downwardly into the mud of unintelligibility. Okay, if, if you keep shuffling the dictionary definitions around, don't be surprised that you start looking like a knuckle-dragging fool who's drooling all over himself. Because, I mean, we're, we're getting close to the point where two plus two is going to be argued to be racist and therefore it can't be four. <laughs> Mark my words, it's coming. They're already talking about how math is inherently racist. Just read an article about that a couple weeks ago. So on the one hand, they want you to bend to their version of the truth, while on the other hand, they don't want to be too, too dogmatic. After all, truth is relative. Truth is meaningless, but you have to obey what we say as truth. And obviously this is hypocrisy, but it's more than that. It's confusion. A blind man groping in the darkness. And someone might respond to a message like this and say, well, that just sounds like you're trying to be dogmatic. Why does it matter? Why, why all this effort? So what? Why the doctrine of Scripture? Well, it matters a lot because in a world where anything can mean anything, having a voice of infallibility looks like dissension and war. Why do you think they're going after Christians so hard? Because we have an infallibility problem that messes with their claims to infallibility. You're too good to affirm that, uh, that a man can be a woman. How dare you, you bigot. And that's why Christianity is never at home, never at home in the dark. It's never at home in the dark. The word of the living God has deposited his word in Holy Scriptures so that we can, in our proclamation and application of it, press the crown rights of King Jesus into every area of life. So the world is foolish. It needs the wisdom of God. The world is dark, so it needs the light of the law of God. The world is absolutely corrupt, so it needs the stability and justice of God. The world is running on empty, so it needs to be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
The world is atrophied and sick, so it needs the regenerating power of God in order to be healed. It needs the infallibility of God. And the connection, by the way, to infallibility and authority is absolutely central to our day and age, and I'll tell you why. Because a bunch of illegitimate authorities are running around telling everyone what to do, where to be, where you can go, what to put on your face, and what to say or not say. Illegitimate authorities. They are illegitimate authorities. Infallible power and authority comes from God alone, not man. The moment you give this to man is the moment you have become a slave to tyranny. So at the end of the day, the big problem we have in our nation is the fact that men are trying to make sense of the world, make sense of themselves, and, 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 and all of that apart from the infallible word of God. As a creature of the living God, man can only be known, man can only be understood, and he can only interpret the world around him properly when he does so in terms of Scripture. So everything else is a disheveled mess that leads to inexorable slavery and tyranny. Everything else. So you all should be grateful for the written word of God. Men died to give this to you. You should be diligent to want to build your life upon it. All of life is to be governed by the scriptures. There's nothing in this world outside of the infallibility and, and the authority of the written word. Nothing. So we, so we proclaim it, we live by it, and we build upon it. Let's pray. Father, we give you the glory and the praise today for your word. We thank you that it has been passed down to us by faithful men, some who were put to death. You think of um, Wycliffe and others who um, simply wanted to, and Tyndale, who wanted to uh, simply give the word of God in an intelligent form, an intelligible form to people. So we pray that you would help us to build our lives upon it, that we would build a culture on it too. Um, so we ask for your spirit's help in this endeavor. In Christ's name, amen.